Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Ma'am, we've had a suicide. You had a suicide? Yes, ma'am. Okay, what's your address? The Woodland Apartment. Woodland Apartment? What apartment number? Uh, 801. The Woodland's 4501, Highway 39 North. The Woodland. There's going to be a male. He believes the caller believes he shot himself. July 2019 marked what should have been a rather monumental time in Christian's case. This is when the Attorney General's office announced they would be releasing Christian's case file, all 4,000 plus pages of it. In short, the case file contains everything that has been accumulated over the years from everyone who has worked this case, MPD, MBI, private investigators, Michael Knox, 
Dr. Jonathan Arden, and most recently, the Attorney General's office. Remember that former DA Bilbo Mitchell recused himself back in February of 2017 after arrest warrants were signed for Whitley and Dillon and a decision was made to present the case to a jury. In his recusal, Bilbo requested that the AG's office present the case. The AG's office assumed responsibility, presented it to a jury in October of 2017, and the jury came back with a no true bill, not enough evidence to indict. Since then, the Andriacchios have wondered not only what was in the case file, but what was presented to the jury. In a December 2017 article regarding the no-bill decision, Ray told the Meridian Star, quote, We were kind of prepared for it. But one thing the Andriacchios were not prepared for was the release of the case file. They had attempted to gain a copy of it for over a year, but were unsuccessful. I had submitted a four-year request for the file, from MBI, and MBI had sent me back a letter and stated that they did not release case files, that case files were exempt from FOIA because of investigative work and that, you know, they were not ever released. So then I went up to the next level, which would have been the Attorney General's office, and requested it from them. And their response, initially I think they did not maybe give me a response, but then they eventually got back to me and stated that they would give me a portion of the file and that it would be close to $1,000. And because of experiences I had had in the past with City of Meridian and FOIA request where they had charged me money, you would pay, you know, three or four hundred dollars and then you would get the material back and it would be just junk mail or it'd be just useless. So you'd basically wasted three or four hundred dollars. And because I didn't trust the attorney general's office to do the right thing, I asked before I sent them a check for that amount of money that I wanted an index of what would be included in the case file that they was going to be given to me. Well, they told me they didn't do an index. And when I asked, you know, just some questions like, well, what would you be sending me? They didn't know. They just kept saying, well, it'll just be whatever the attorneys and the investigators determine is appropriate to send out. I had the phone conversation with Marvin Sanders in which, you know, he was telling me that they couldn't provide an index, but that I could come there and review the file and they could tell me what I could have and what I couldn't have and then they could copy what portions I wanted. In the course of that conversation, we got to talking about Christian's case and how I had talked to some of the grand jurors and that they had indicated to me that the presentation to the grand jury was pretty much that it was a suicide, basically ensuring that they would get a no bill, or at least not an indictment. He became offended by this and defensive and stated that, you know, that was not true and that he would never have done something like that. and that he said, you know, we even had a video that we showed him. And I said, well, what do you mean you had a video? And he said, well, I mean, we had a video showing how your son was sitting on the toilet and he shot himself. And I said, so you you made a video? And he said, you know, it was a video of another case that they had and that it showed how that scenario could play out. I told him, so you're basically telling me that you did present it as a suicide. If you're showing a video of someone shooting themselves, then you are presenting it as a suicide. In this conversation, he wasn't aware of experts, Arden or Knox. He really appeared 
somewhat confused about what was presented and, and how it was presented. And so we ended the conversation with him telling me that I needed to contact Roger Wade at the Attorney General's office to set up an appointment to review the file. So I began trying to contact Roger Wade. Todd and I both called multiple times, was not able, ever able to get him. He never returned a phone call. I called Marvin Sanders. He would never return a phone call. So I sent Marvin Sanders a letter, and I attached a transcript of the taped call. And I said, you know, you can refer back to our phone conversation that I've attached a copy of. And to kind of refresh your memory, what we discussed and that I was supposed to set up this meeting. We've had multiple phone calls. No one will return our phone call to set up this meeting. No one told me this, but I assume when he realized that he had been taped, that was the last contact we had with him, him him or Roger Way or anyone at the attorney general's office. No one would return a phone call. No one would return an email. Of course, letters were not responded to. So in the interim of all of this, we had actually gotten the MBI report. So I was not, quite frankly, very worried about the attorney general case file because I knew that they had pretty much based everything on the MBI report. So I had not really made any further efforts with them when they were not responding to phone calls or anything because based on my conversations with the grand jurors that I talked to, it was obvious that they had taken the information from the MBI report, put in some text messages, and that was really pretty much the basis of their investigation and their presentation. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. 
I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The Andriacchios assumed they'd never see the case file. But they learned otherwise in July of 2019, when the AG's office informed them they'd be sending a copy of the file. I say July rather than a specific date because it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when, due to how the release of the file was handled. A statement made by District Attorney Cassie Coleman described the following events regarding the release of the file. On July 3rd, a representative from the AG's office released a copy of a portion of the file via email to an individual who made a FOIA request. And on July 17th, a copy of the entire file was mailed by the AG's office to multiple individuals who had made FOIA requests. Now, as it pertains to the Andriacchios, what I can say for certain is they received a call from Marvin Sanders at the AG's office on July 8th and were told a flash drive containing the file was being mailed to them, Whitley's uncle, Frankie Wagner, and an unnamed party. Based on that information, they assumed they'd see the file in a couple of days. I can't blame them for thinking that. But they didn't actually receive the file until July 17th. And during that waiting period, starting the day they got the news, documents began leaking online via social media, presumably from the quote, partial release that occurred on the 3rd. I'm not going to go into the specifics of the posts that were made or the comments that ensued, but I watched it all unfold. And it's my opinion that the posting of these documents were used as a way to taunt and harass the Andriacchios. Personally, I think after everything, Christian's family should have been the first people to see this file, hands down. While there's no real precedence that had to occur, I just feel that would have been the honorable thing to do. But the story goes, someone else just so happened to make a FOIA request, and for some reason, they were granted partial access to the file. Kinda strange. And look, there's nothing wrong with wanting to see the file, and making a FOIA request to obtain it is the way to go. That's all acceptable. But what happened in that time leading up to the 17th, while the Andriacchios awaited their copy? That's inexcusable, and shows a different motive for wanting to obtain the file. So approximately July 10th or 11th, somewhere around in there, maybe off a day or two, my husband Todd received a phone call from Marvin Sanders just kind of randomly out of the blue. We had had no recent contact with him. And he informed Todd that they would be releasing the case file to Frankie Wagner because he had requested the file and an unnamed person. And then that they would be sending us a copy of the file because they were releasing it to these other two individuals. And the file would come on a thumb drive and they were getting it together that day and it was gonna be put in the mail that day. So Todd called me and told me, you know, what had happened. And so I immediately called Marvin Sanders and he surprisingly answered the phone. And, you know, I told him that I had been told, informed that they was releasing the file and he was very agitated and yelling and said, yes, they were, and that he wasn't gonna argue with me. And I said, well, I wanna know if the video that you referenced in our other conversation is going to be a part of the case file and he stated no that's work product and we're not releasing that and i said well the whole file is work product 
So, you know, and I want to know why your policy is that you never release a case file. I said, actually, I have called and did not identify myself and spoke to an investigator there. And his response was, we never release a case file. And when I explained the situation again without giving names and just said, I want, you know, my son's case file that was presented to a grand jury a year ago, again, his response was, we do not release case files. So I know that it was, it's very atypical for a case file to be released to even the family, much less to random third parties. Mississippi Public Records Act law excludes investigative work, which is basically the case file, from having to be released. So when it is stated that they had no choice, it was a public record, that's not true. It could have been excluded. And there's even attorney general opinions that discuss that autopsy reports and medical examiner information is excluded from FOIA requests. So Jim Hood, who was the current attorney general, himself had given that opinion years prior to a case that Bilbo Mitchell asked him an opinion on, and it's a published opinion stating that these items will not be disclosed. It was obvious to us that this was intentional and we felt that it was very hurtful that they were releasing it to third parties who were related to the people who we felt were responsible for Christian's death. Of course, we didn't know the extent of what they were releasing. So for those days, from the time we received the phone call until we actually received the case file on July 18th, of course, that was very nerve-wracking because every day you, you waited for the postman to come to see because, again, they, all we knew was it was supposed to be over 2,000 pages. We didn't know what was contained in those 2,000 pages. And it never entered my mind to worry about autopsy photos being in, in there. Um, that never, you know, entered my mind. I was really more concerned about private text messages um, that had nothing to do with the case. I understood messages that maybe were between Christian and Whitley, but not messages that were between Christian and his friends, Christian in past relationships, and, you know, Christian and his family members that, again, had nothing, no bearing on an investigation. It sounds like they wanted the file to be released for political reasons and because, you know, it would hurt us. Frankie was immediately posting the same few items, uh, a couple of text messages and I think uh, one page of a report. Like that, that started immediately on like the 10th or 11th when we got the phone call saying the file is going to be released. I think that, you know, the goal was that they thought that people would turn against the family, against Christian, against the podcast, and make us look like, you know, that we were dishonest. And, you know, the opposite happened. We gained much more support because it wasn't a matter of whether or not Christian, you know, committed suicide or not. It was a matter of you are giving out information that's hurtful for no reason. You are trying to humiliate a deceased child. 
you know, again, no matter what the cause of death is, there's no excuse for that, none. So, I mean, they, they handpicked the information that they wanted out there and tried to skew the public's view now. And thankfully, the public was smarter than that and recognized what they were doing. You know, when you have the CAO of the city of Meridian telling people before the case file is released. I mean, this was this was statements made before the case file was released that it looks like I'm going to have to piss on a dead kid's grave in order to get her to shut up. That means it was planned, it was intentional, and it was cruel because, again, no matter what your views of cause of death is, to release autopsy pictures of someone's child, no matter if he's 21 years old, he's my child, and to release those pictures is something that I will never get over and I will never forgive because they'll be there forever. And we will... We can never... get those pictures back from the thousands of people who have from all the people who have downloaded those pictures and sat there and looked at those I hate giving them that power over him and um if I had ever known that they would sink this low to do this that you know it would have probably made me rethink but you never thought that people would be so cruel but the flip side of that is is that that was the worst thing they could have done and they couldn't do anything worse so if they thought that it was going to make us stop it was kind of like just the opposite it's like we have no reason to stop because they've they've done the worst thing they could do to christian which would be in turn really the worst thing they could have done to us on july 10th we submitted an official request to the AG's office for a copy of the case file. And just shy of a month later, we received a flash drive in the mail. Immediately, I opened the file, and first reaction was, it's huge. Like I said, 4,000 plus pages. But once I started skimming through it, I wasn't so overwhelmed. The majority of it consisted of documents I've seen before. Reports from MPD, MBI, Michael Knox, Dr. Arden, and crime labs material that the Andriacchio's private investigators had gathered. There were crime scene and autopsy photos, and what took up most of the pages were the extraction reports from Christian's cell phones. Again, something the Andriacchio's had shared with me back in 2018 when they had their own extraction performed. The results seemed to match. All that to say, there's still a lot to discuss here, and more importantly, outside of all the repeat documents, 
there was some new information revealed in the file. So let's jump into it. I'll start with the biggest talking point, the 911 call. Yes, finally after years of FOIA requests from the Andriacchios, met with years of denial, the call was released. We're going to play it, but before we do, I just want to warn you that the audio you're about to hear is graphic and may be disturbing for some listeners. If you are hesitant to listen, I recommend that you skip forward about four minutes right now. If you're still listening, please proceed with caution. Suicide. You had a suicide? Yes, ma'am. Okay, what's your address? The Woodland Apartments. Woodland Apartments? What apartment number? Uh, 801. Apartment 801? Yes, ma'am. You'll see a, a BMW. Okay. All right, who is it, sir? Christian Medrocchio. Chris Medrocchio? Yeah. Okay, and you said he, commit su- he committed suicide? Yes, ma'am. He's, he's laying across the, the bathroom tub, and he's, he's got blood everywhere. Okay, and you said there's blood everywhere, he's across the bathroom? Yes, ma'am. Okay, do you, he's not breathing? No, ma'am. Okay. What's your name? Dylan Swearingen. Swearingen, what was your first name? Dylan. Dylan? Yes, ma'am. Okay, Dylan, stay on the phone with me, okay? Okay. Is your phone number 616-5650? Ma'am. Is your phone number 616-5650? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Please get somebody up there. I, I got several officers on the way. Okay, just stay on the phone with me. I really need to call somebody in the family. Okay, hold on. You don't know how, there's no weapons or anything? I think he shot himself. Okay, you think he shot himself? Yes, ma'am. I left to go to the store, and he, uh... He went to the bathroom. I thought he was taking a shower. Okay. Did he say that he was going to do this, or? No, ma'am. Okay. Okay, who's that in the background? That's his girlfriend. His girlfriend's there, too? Yes, ma'am. What's her name? Whitley Goodman. Whitney Goodman? Whitley, yes, ma'am. Okay, so we do have everyone on the way, so if you need to let me go, you can, okay? Yes, yes ma'am. I really need to call okay. some family members. Just, 
make sure that you're looking out for the officers, okay? Okay. They'll be there I have, Tell them I have the door open. Door is open? Yes, ma'am. And you'll see a, a silver BMW in the driveway. Okay, well, we have a couple officers that should be there in a minute, okay? Okay. All right. Along with the 911 call was various dispatch audio, which you heard in the open of this episode, as well as a callback to Dylan asking to confirm the address, as the incorrect apartment complex was given. In the dispatch audio, there are also other people you can hear in the background on Dylan's end of the call, which we have determined were likely relatives of both Dylan and Whitley, who arrived on scene before police. Another item to discuss is Christian's cell phones. Back in episode 7, we talked about some of the content found on one of Christian's phones, his iPhone, and shared some alarming texts that came back in the extraction report acquired during MBI's investigation. The case file contains the full extraction from both his iPhone and his HTC phone. Keep in mind, Christian only had his iPhone on him. The HTC phone was left behind on the boat, and he stopped using that phone on the 24th. A review of the contents of the phones shows that Christian clearly had personal struggles he was dealing with. It seems his relationship with Ray was strained near the end, and it also seems that he and Whitley had a toxic relationship. At times, he appeared confused, stressed, and possibly even depressed. But in fairness to Christian, depression cannot be diagnosed through one's text messages. In my opinion, he was a 21-year-old trying to figure out life. But when it comes to the contents of the phones, the question really should be whether or not there's any hard evidence in there that says what exactly happened that day. I'd argue there is not. While there are things to consider, you could debate the contents of the phone to no end and never find something irrefutable, because there's just way too much to consider outside of the phones if you're looking at this from an investigative standpoint. Not to mention, it gets complicated analyzing the contents of an iPhone when considering that data can be manipulated by changing the time and settings. And on top of that, we know that Christian's iPhone was in Whitley's possession for an extended period of time that day, It's my understanding that the phone being in another person's possession and it clearly being tampered with would make it difficult to admit and defend in a courtroom anyways. But all this to say, from an investigative side, there is some additional content that I found interesting. Back in December of 2013, Christian texted Whitley the pin code for the gate at the Magnolia Marine parking lot. This could be significant because of the theory of Christian's Jeep being moved and the mystery of how Christian's gun got in the apartment if it was supposedly kept in his Jeep. There's also a text that same month where Christian asks Whitley if she was able to send herself some money via Western Union. She confirms she was able to, implying she knew his banking information. There's a text exchange in January of 2014 where Whitley asks Christian to buy a scope for his pistol, implying it's for her use. On February 24th, 2014, some of the last activity on the HTC phone implies that Christian was looking to end things with Whitley. He was also trying to sell a dirt bike to someone. And another thing I found interesting was he was incessantly checking the following people's Twitter accounts. Matt Miller, Jet Miller, and Zach Tab. This, of course, was the day before gun night and could be of no relation to anything. I just find it odd the chances that he was snooping on these people so close to the date of the supposed gun night. But what I'd really like to focus on is the day in question, February 26th, because there was some phone activity that day. I'll pick up around the time that Dylan was attempting to withdraw money from Christian's account. At 12.29, a picture of Dylan was taken from inside the bank. He's speaking with a teller, with a cell phone in his left hand, and a bank card in his right. Seven minutes later, at 12.36, 
Dylan sends a text to Christian's phone. I'm here if you really want to do that, boss. It's up to you. A minute after that, he gets a text back from Christian's phone. Yeah, my account number is... And the last four digits of my social is... Followed two minutes later with 1300 in my bank that they will actually let me take out. One minute later, at 1240, a call is made from Dylan to Christian's phone, which lasts 33 seconds. Three minutes later, a text from Dylan to Christian's phone asking, do you need cigarettes or anything? Followed by a prompt reply, no. Nah. At 1.32, a call is placed to Matt Miller. No answer. One minute after that, the following text is sent to Matt. Hey, what time would you want to hang out today? This is Whitley, by the way. This text had been deleted from the phone, but phone extractions can also recover deleted texts. Moving on, two more calls were made to Matt at 3.44. No answer. Another call at 3.46. No answer. That call was followed by a text saying, Answer. And that text had also been deleted. More calls were placed to Matt at 3.47, 3.49, and 3.55. They were not answered. Matt finally responds to all this at 6.50 in a text saying, I've been asleep. This text had also been deleted. Also found in the case file is a polygraph report from Matt Miller. It's dated May 7, 2014, and was conducted by James Sharp with MPD. The results came back as truthful, no deception indicated, based on the following questions listed in the report. Were you at Christian's apartment at the time of his death? Did you shoot Christian? Did you witness Christian's death? And did you touch anything in the apartment after Christian's death? All to which he responded no. Interestingly, there's no questions related to any time before Christian's death, which was the only reason he was brought into this case in the first place. The next item I'd like to discuss is regarding the gunshot residue. There were initially three gunshot residue samples submitted by Meridian Police to the Mississippi Crime Laboratory. They were samples taken from Christian, Whitley, and Dylan on February 26th. We discussed these test results back in episode 4. These examinations were completed between March 19th and March 27th. All three of them had particles indicative of gunshot residue that were observed to be present. Christian on his right palm and the back of his left hand. Whitley on her right palm, the back of her right hand, her left palm, and the back of her left hand. Dylan on his left palm, the back of his left hand, and the back of his right hand. The phrase that's used in this report observed to be present, means that two of the three compound particle types, lead, antimony, and barium, common in gunshot residue, were found in the samples. Interestingly, the AG case file also includes a fourth gunshot residue test that was requested by Meridian Police on March 26, 2014. This examination was completed on April 3, 2014. According to this test, Christian had particles of gunshot residue that were positively identified on his right palm and his left palm. The phrase positively identified in this report means that all three particles, typically fused into a single particle, were identified. Christian also had particles indicative of gunshot residue that were observed to be present on the back of his right hand, back of his left hand, and on his left palm. The thing I'm curious about is why was the second test on Christian requested? 
There's a note about his hands being dirty, so maybe that could be why. But there were already particles found in his original test. The presence of gunshot residue on a person can be explained by three possibilities. The person either fired a weapon, handled a weapon or object with gunshot residue on its surface, or they were in close proximity to a weapon at the time of the discharge. Therefore, whether he shot himself or someone else shot him, you'd expect to find gunshot residue on Christian's hands. But another possibility is the residue could have come from something else. For example, Christian worked on a chemical barge. The pumps had exposed drive shafts and brakes, and the three main components of gunshot residue can be found in brake dust, asphalt, and many other things that he worked around. Josh pointed this out to me from experience, that when you work on a towboat pushing chemical barges, you are exposed to a ton of different chemicals. Everything from cyanide to raw slurry oil. You're also exposed to hot oil heaters, diesel pumps, and everything used to maintain the boat and barge, like stripping agents and metallic paints. You can clearly see in the autopsy photos that Christian's hands were dirty. That came with his job. Do I believe that's why he tested positive for gunshot residue? Not necessarily. But I think it makes it difficult to deem anything conclusive as it relates to gunshot residue. And one more thing to note from the case file that pertains to the gun rather than the gunshot residue is a trigger pull exam. Trent Weeks from MBI submitted Christian's Kimber 45 1911 to be tested. The results were that a pressure applied to the trigger of greater than four and a half pounds is required to cause the firearm to discharge. This is within the factory specifications for a Kimber 45 1911. In other words, this verifies that the trigger had not been modified to a lower pull weight. There's also a document titled Cell Towers Dylan, which seems to show cell tower pings from Dylan's phone. It's just a Google Maps image with three pings indicated, along with coordinates to the corresponding towers. I assume this was used to try and corroborate his alibi, but there's no times listed in this document, and I honestly don't know what to make of the document. Another document, titled Andriacchio Review, seems to have been used as a way of arguing or disproving any theories around foul play. I'm not sure whether or not it was used in the presentation to a jury, but this seems to be the motive behind it. In this document, it shows various crime scene photos with argumentative notes added to the side of the photos. For example, there's a crime scene photo of Christian laying over the tub with the door open, and from that angle, you cannot see any blood spatter on the door, and they note that the door is clean. They follow that with a photo taken by Josh later after the body had been removed that shows some smudges of blood as a way to state that blood on the door occurred as a result of them transporting Christian's body. Then there's a photo of Christian where you can see the lividity on his torso and they say the markings are consistent with the position his body was found in, thus totally disregarding the lividity found in other parts of the body which are inconsistent with the position he was found in, such as his calf. They also say that his body could not have been drugged into the tub because there are no foot markings in the blood in the tub, nor is there any blood on his hands or arms, so his body must have fallen in that position. Then, they argue that because the projectile is visible in two different photos, it is highly unlikely that anyone could stage a scene, clean up a secondary scene, and call 911 before rigor set in. This of course disregards the fact that the autopsy photos, as well as accounts by Dr. Arden, and EMT state that, in fact, Christian was in full rigor when emergency personnel arrived. They also show photos of what is considered to be blood spatter inside the tub, though it is a very small amount. They claim, based on an autopsy photo of where the gunshot wound is located and where the guide rod was pressed into his head, 
that this is consistent with how a right-handed person would hold a gun to their head. Then they show a photo of the gun under Christian and say the resting position of the gun is curious, but not out of the realm of possibility if the gun were dropped after discharge. There is also a close-up photo of the gun and they observe that the hammer is in the down position and the manual safety off. They mention that hammer follow is a common issue with a Kimber 1911 and that theoretically the gun could have experienced hammer follow and therefore not discharge as the safety was not engaged. This brings us to the last item, the PowerPoint presentation. In the last episode, we heard from Gypsy Ward from the AG's office, who was the lead investigator after Bilbo recused himself. She said they presented everything they had in a PowerPoint to the grand jury. The PowerPoint is included in the case file, and assuming this is what she is referencing, then we therefore have an idea of what was presented to the jury. The PowerPoint presentation consisted of the following. The 911 call, crime scene photos, slides that appear to be the investigations of MPD, MBI, private investigators, and Knox and Associates. I say appear to be because these slides contain the title of each of these, followed by an embedded document in each slide, which cannot be opened to see the contents. Gypsy also stated that Arden's report was included. And while there is a blank slide in the PowerPoint, which could be designated for this, if it is, there is no header stating Arden's report the same way the other slides are formatted, so there's no way of knowing for sure if it was included. There are some very select text messages sent from Christian's phone to Whitley, but not the full extractions. A series of crime lab reports and results, such as the gunshot residue kits taken from Christian, Whitley, and Dylan, Christian's gun and ammunition, the projectile recovered from the tub, the gray coat that Whitley supposedly was wearing brought in by Dallas, which came back negative, a test for blood on the gun, and also a letter to Roger Wade letting him know that a very small sample of DNA was recovered from the gun, but that it was so small that their lab was unable to test it. There is a handwritten statement from Dylan, the same statement found in the MPD report, which we've read before. Also included are Christian's autopsy photos, reports from the coroner and medical examiner, a timeline of events on February 26th, a summary of the EMT report, a summary from the very first private investigator the Andriacchios hired, who believed it was a suicide, a summary of the coroner's report, a summary of Max May's report, and copies of Dylan, Dallas, and Whitley's driver's licenses. Then there is a slide titled PID Final Summary, which is another file that cannot be opened. And that's it. It sounds like a lot, but don't be overwhelmed by this. At the end of the day, the case file didn't turn out to be as eye-opening as I anticipated. And maybe that's because I've seen most of it. As I've said time and time again, the Andriacchios have been invested in this since day one, and they've done their homework. Sure, new things have come up since we got involved back in 2018, but I saw the majority of this case file the first time I sat down with Ray, which is pretty impressive when you think about it. Here are my two major takeaways from the case file. First, a lot of work has been poured into this case from all angles. I will not single out individuals or agencies or try and determine who did legitimate investigating and who didn't, or who was trying to help and who wasn't. Yes, a lot more could have and should have been done. No one can argue that. But all in all, you cannot dispute the amount of work that has gone into this one case, and it's sad to think that it's required this. My second takeaway is I cannot help but feel like that jury in 2017 was given a lopsided presentation in the direction of suicide. The Andriacchios, of course, feel the same way about this. Here's Josh's take on it all. The AG really didn't do an investigation. They just took what MBI had and what MPD had and they put it in one single folder. 
There's a handful of files in there that are actually authored by the AG. None of them really have any substance. The few that are actual reports and theories of what Gypsy Ward thinks happened, you know, there's nothing backing them up. There's no expert witnesses that can corroborate what she says. And that's what they presented to the grand jury. They presented a suicide. At the grand jury, the AG used a video of a man named Ricardo Serna committing suicide to try and explain to the jury members why there would be no blood spatter at the scene. What they didn't tell the jury members, and what I'm not completely sure they even know, is what type of ammo was used when Ricardo Serna shot himself. We don't know if it was a full metal jacket. We don't know if it was a hollow point. We don't know how hot the rounds were. We don't know what brand they were. We don't even know if there was an exit wound. In the video, which is fairly low quality, it happened in 2003, you can't tell anything. You can't tell if the bullet actually exited this man's head. All you see is blood coming out of his ear, which is fairly common, and a gunshot wound to the head. I mean, at 480p, even if there was an exit wound, you're not gonna see high velocity blood spatter. You're not gonna see any of that. So why they use this video to try and prove a point that they then go back on months later and say somebody actually cleaned the scene, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't help that I know of two jurors who have described the presentation as skewed and they've wished to remain anonymous for fear of their own safety. This case tends to have that effect on people. But if you study this file, and specifically the AG's presentation, I feel it's pretty obvious they erred in the direction of suicide. Evidence is going to speak differently to different people, and there's nothing wrong with trying to reach a conclusion as to the manner of death. I assume that's what most people listening to this are trying to do, and that's also what the people in that jury in 2017 were trying to do. So what they needed was an unbiased reveal of everything, extra emphasis on the word everything, because everything was not presented to that jury. And it's our understanding, after hearing from one of the jurors, that they were told if they just no-bill this case, they'll try and go get some more evidence and bring it back. I'm no expert on this manner, but I'm pretty confident that's not how it's supposed to work. And this was by far not the first thing to happen in this case that would make one say, that's not how it's supposed to work. Thinking back to that article from 2017, after the decision to no-bill, Maybe that's why Ray said she was prepared for it. And it's another reason why we felt culpable was a suiting name for this story. Now, if you fast forward to their secret meeting, all of their theories and beliefs have changed. What they presented to grand jury was a clean-cut suicide with no foul play. And now they believe that his body was moved. They believe the scene was cleaned up. They believe he was dead for three to four hours. I mean, just the fact that they have changed their minds on everything should be proof that they've seen something new that would make them change their mind. Otherwise, I don't know why they would do that. I mean, what more do you need? They keep telling us to bring them new evidence, but it's not our job to investigate this. It's their job. And they clearly think something happened. We've got them on tape all agreeing that the body was moved and the scene was cleaned and he was dead for three or four hours. And Gypsy Ward herself saying that the bill is wrong, the bill that was returned from grand jury. So go and investigate it. They haven't done anything. 
I don't know what more they need. There's no way around it. They're either incompetent or they're corrupt. There's no middle ground now. Everybody wants to use this excuse as, you know, oh, well, I got this case. It was handed to me or I wasn't here when this happened, so I shouldn't be held responsible. Well, you have it now and you're here now, so do your job right now. Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are Jacob Bozarth, Mark Mennery, Dennis Cooper, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing and sound design by Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme music and score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, cover art by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, CulpablePodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.